0: And today our guest is TJ Kozin. TJ has been in real estate since 2006, first cutting his teeth before the crash with 200 plus multifamily units in Tennessee. He's done deals in Texas, California, and Tennessee. And his company primarily renovates and hotels in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and wholesale deals throughout Texas. So welcome to the show, TJ. How are you doing today?
1: Oh, I'm doing fantastic. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Thank you so much. So, can you share a little bit more about your background, um, what you're currently focused on, and how you got started in the real estate space?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Now, I got started in out of college, actually, started doing loans back in like 2005, I guess. Got kind of tired and burned out of that. So, just, just wasn't interested in that field and thought it'd be fun to kind of do something that maybe it wasn't the best like marketing decision in 2006 was jump into a bunch of multifamily units. So my first deal was actually 112 apartment units in Tennessee. My second deal was 98. Both of those projects were, they were a lot of fun, but definitely like a steep learning curve, kind of at a young age. I think I was uh, 24 or 25 when we bought them. So a little while ago and quite, quite a bit different market kind of getting started, I guess, back in the day, I found the first one off of Craigslist, which is kind of the dumbest thing ever. And like a good deal, like a lot of upside and a lot of potential. So we kind of jumped on it and got going.
0: Awesome. So I'd like to deep dive into that a little bit. Um, so you were 24 when you first bought your large multifamily, 112 units. That's quite a feat for, for a 24 year old. How are you able to do it? And like, um, and what gave you kind of the confidence to go ahead and jump into this 112 unit where people would typically tend to maybe go into like a single family home. First of all.
1: Yeah. Well, that would have been more intelligent right? Uh, <laughs> to start out slower. No. It just, it just made, it seemed like it made a lot of sense. We did the cash flow analysis. We did the kind of projection analysis on it. There are some kind of favorable things on the acquisition side that really made a lot of sense to us. So when we bought it, it was a property that had been recently in foreclosure. The yeah. first one had recently been in foreclosure. So uh, some guy from the East Coast bought it kind of cleaned it up. It didn't stabilize the occupancy, but it got rid of a lot of the less desirable tenants in that kind of area. And when they When they sold it, when they had it on the market, they offered first their basically assumable financing with their lender that they had used on the place. And that was kind of an interesting story, too. He was technically a hard money lender, but he was a local guy that was just loaning out at, I think it was like a point and a half above prime or something like ridiculously, uh, like ridiculously reasonably priced for hard money. And he was a great guy. Like we got to know each other really well. And then the seller ended up carrying back, I think, 200,000 on a second. For the duration of, I think it was eighteen months, maybe twenty-four months, while we were anticipating getting the rehab stabilized, and then we just raised the down payment and the um, kind of like net loss operating expense account for construction and rock and roll. I mean, it was, like I said, definitely a lot of learning curves and a lot of like a lot of fun, but it was you know we just structured it so it made sense at the time.
0: So you said that you raised the difference. Was that who was that primarily with?
1: Yeah. Uh, Family, friends, networking, it wasn't a huge uh, balance. It was only a couple hundred thousand, I think, at the time. So it was relatively straightforward to raise. Like anything that's a good deal, or at least like looks like a good deal on the surface, the money really wasn't the bigger problem. The bigger problem was in the expectation of going out there and kind of biting off this just massive project uh, at such a young age.
0: So when you brought this to your family and friends, you know, as a 24 year old, were there any concerns or was that what was kind of the conversations around like around that first uh, property? Yeah, there are obviously
1: concerns. I think there are concerns about the ability to do it, about the like the good idea in this of trying to take on a like a massive renovation project out of state. At the time, we thought we had a pretty good management company that could handle a lot of the issues. That turned out they sucked. Uh, they ended up actually embezzling some money. And we had to sue them and get a bunch of it back. So it was a real pain in the ass. But no, we I don't know, we kinda of followed the blueprint, I guess. There wasn't as much like bigger pockets knowledge out there. But there was definitely the, you know, buy something that's kind of the crappiest property and a, you know, not bad neighborhood and work on making it one of the better properties in the neighborhood and stabilize it and you know, hopefully make money on it. Hopefully, uh get going with it.
0: So how did you find out they were embezzling money from you guys?
1: Oh, they were double charging on stuff. They were double charging on like the management fee for the renovation they lost the deposit we gave them for rehab costs it was like a thirty thousand dollar wire wow. they just like couldn't find so just uh, couldn't find. yeah i mean look in your bank account it's right there and they didn't so they didn't accredit that to the account this is shoot, this is what 15 years ago so i don't remember yeah. all the details but yeah we sued them they settled they gave us our money back but it took uh, it took like it took a couple of years so anyway yeah horror stories of management companies is always fun there's always a trade-off, I guess, even in the single family space of doing it yourself or doing it in-house, even with assistance or whatever, versus mm. hiring someone to, to look after your stuff for you. And I, I don't really know what the balance is on that, to be honest with you. I've used good management companies and I've fired bad ones. And we do a lot of our own rentals, like single family space in-house. So it just kind of depends on which way you want to go, I guess.
0: And so from there, you know, you did two large multi the 112 unit and then the 98 unit. And from there, what did you do afterwards? <laughs>
1: Yeah. We ended up... Uh, so we bought the 90, 98 unit. We actually ended up having a short sale, unfortunately, because the crash was a, uh, a thing in 2008 to 10. So nothing too sexy about it, I guess. But we got out of that one. And that was not as much of a stabilization project, but it was in a little less desirable submarket where the projected rent went down about 30% inside of a two to three-month time period in the kind of financial crisis thing. There's nothing more eerie, I guess, than trying to negotiate with a bank that just got like the lender that we had on that property actually went out of business and got seized by the FDIC and sold to another bank. So there's nothing more eerie than kind of walking into a bank branch that has just been taken over, where everyone's like, you still know a couple of people, but they're definitely like different path. They're more like an asset protection than let's go lend more money. So it was kind of it was kind of a weird time in 2000. Like, it kind of hit us, I guess, maybe nine to a uh, ten and a half somewhere in there. So, after that, we, we kept the other property for a while, cash flowed, and ended up eventually selling it. Kind of went back to Southern California and just started buying and selling houses because it looked like a great market. Uh, we picked up some stuff, like everything in California was half price at the time. And some of the stuff that we got was 75% off, which is, it seems insane in this market, but it, I don't know. It seemed like it made sense at the time. So, I went out there and started doing that a lot.
0: And so, you purchased in California. Was that your primary market after that?
1: Yeah, I was there for 2010-14, I think. I didn't really have, mostly single family. did like one small multifamily deal um, when I was out there. Nothing too crazy about it. But just bought and sold a bunch of stuff, Inland Empire, kind of east of uh, Los Angeles and all that in, what, Hammett, Banning, some of those small towns. Did a lot of stuff in San Diego. Well, I mean, a lot for me at the time. We didn't really have the volume mindset at the time that we do now, living in Dallas or doing just a ton of deals. We did a decent amount in like San Diego and what is that uh, in the Empire County? What is that? I don't remember the county even anymore. It's been so long. Riverside, um, yeah, Riverside. Thank you, thank <laughs> you. Couldn't remember. No, we did stuff in Escondido, Poway, Ramona, all those towns. So it was it was fun. It was a good time. But I don't know. Got married. Didn't really didn't see a straightforward way at the time of how to really scale up business in San Diego. I think it was more of a mindset thing on my part than the ability to do it because. Tons of people did it. But I decided to move to Dallas, make a, like, take the same business model, move it out here, and just do a lot more volume.
0: And so, what kind of uh, drove that decision to move out to Dallas and shift your focus? And why did you decide to shift your focus?
1: Yeah, we just, we liked the the quicker turnover. We still, you know, still picking up stuff for rentals, still have quite a few units and all that. But we we liked the focus on a lower price point, what seemed to be more affordable. It wasn't about like, didn't think that California is getting overpriced, you know, in twenty what 14, 15, I guess. Just thought that thought it'd be fun to go somewhere where it was a little uh, like affordability for living, and then just easier to find deals. And it turned out to be, you know, I think the right decision. I don't know. You can't play it both ways, I guess.
0: And so then for you, you know, you went from multifamily to single family, and then you're still doing some of the multifamilies. But what was kind of like that that driving factor for you to focus more on the single family side?
1: Yeah, definitely. We liked so the biggest problem with with the second property. The first one was the massive rehab project it turned out relatively successful. The second one, we kind of bought it under the same terms, so the all that stuff was good. And we were able to refinance it and stabilize it, but when the market went down, uh, it was just very difficult to get rid of and unload. So I like the kind of relative liquidity, I guess, of single family products. And again, that's probably should have gone more hardcore back into multifamily, but take a kind of a kick, and it's like, yeah, you know, I'm gonna in this pond for a minute and see if I like it. And we definitely like we definitely like the volume model of just what we do with single family right now and, and other stuff that we'd kind of bump into, but we're not as actively looking for it.
0: And so for single families, what's your kind of model and what are what kind of properties are you looking for?
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. The I don't know I guess the old school methodology of thinking about it is pick something that's closest to the kind of median home price in the area, make it really pretty, and either refinance it and rent it or go and sell it and renovate it and sell it. Our favorite model right now in this market, because we look at ourselves right now, obviously we do a lot of volume in real estate, but we look at ourselves as basically a marketing company for getting direct-to-seller properties. So that's our focus. Like Our focus isn't on the construction or the, you know, the dispositions, really. All that stuff is pretty straightforward. The most difficult part is finding good deals that just make a lot of sense. So we spend a lot of... Uh, that's where we optimize the like the business side, or the kind of lead gen aspect of it. Where we optimize the disposition side is we really we try to take for the most part every deal and figure out what's the best maximization strategy for that deal. So and also depends a little bit, I suppose, on where our cash position is at the time. But in some markets, maybe it makes sense to do a full blown out renovation and set records. We set records on a lot of our flips. In some markets, maybe it makes sense to just wholesale it and move it on to another investor that wants it for a different strategy. Uh, we do quite a bit of that. And obviously, we have our favorite markets that we love to hold rentals in. So we try to pick up them, you know, they come along. And then our favorite strategy right now with the kind of crazy market dynamics that we're experiencing in North Texas is definitely the kind of wholesale strategy where... We're seeing increases obviously on like wholesale pricing. So that's awesome when we get good deals. Everyone knows, I think we're seeing massive like run ups in the retail pricing. But really, the difference between the wholesale pricing, the retail pricing is compressing maybe a little bit, but not that much. But where we're really seeing kind of a price compression, I think, is between the retail side and the not renovated side, the wholesale side. So we take down a property, do a lot of cleanup work, you know, house, trash, carpet, cars in the backyard that, you know, I mean, that's an extreme example, but we actually just had one like a month ago that we did that with. And we're able to almost maximize, almost get like a flip profit for doing not flip work. There's a lot of kind of caveats with that. And I, I think you wanted to touch on that when you, when we talked beforehand. One of the caveats is you really need to know the market and you really need to know really the buyer avatar target for the property itself. A lot of people think, oh, it's, let's, let's wholesale this one because I can't get it for a good enough price. I don't know if that makes it a good deal. It might. Let's look at it. But for us, it's more a matter of where's the market? Where's an actual comp for this property in this condition? And the cool thing about it is if you're pricing lower than full retail value and obviously higher than wholesale, then if you're pricing incorrectly, you're going to get either bid up and uh, get offers above ask, or if you're priced too high, which we try not to do very often. Then you're still going to get a ton of viewings because you're going to have going to be priced below kind of the retail pricing on it. So we we love that strategy. We do it a lot. I would well I would say we do it probably 30 percent of the time with all the deals we have. So probably 30, 30 flip, 30 wholesale, 30 kind of wholesale, and then there's an extra 10 percent there, right? So like rentals and other stuff. We just kind of end up keeping.
0: We love hosting this show. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Got it. And in terms of financing, are you guys doing this all on your own, or is it with the other investors as well? Yeah, we kind of have. It
1: depends on the house. It depends on the strategy. We do once in a while. If we can get seller financing, that's cool. We just finished up one actually, but it turned out to be a massive renovation project. It was like a hundred thousand dollar Reno, but we got killer seller financing. So like, well shit, now we got to get a hundred grand to do the Reno. But that wasn't too big a deal. Uh, the answer is, I guess, all of the above. So we use some. We have some great relationships with some local hard money lenders, and at least in Dallas, I don't know about California, but hard money lending rates are just. They're so competitive and so easy if you have good relationships that it's not really that big a like benefit to have great banking relationships at the moment. I think our hard money loans are eight point nine and like two, and maybe a bank is like seven point nine and one and a half. So anyway, so we use them a lot. We use a lot of our own cash for the difference for the you know down payment and to float the rehab cost. Once in a while, we have obviously we have folks hitting us up to do deals with us quite frequently. So generally, we help we set terms with them a lot. So we'll uh we'll offer them basically they pay for everything and we'll offer them a loan on the property and a reasonable interest rate. So we do the whole like no money out of pocket kind of thing. But that's relationship based, like just people that I've known for years that have seen us and done business with us in the past. So we do all the above. Once in a while, if it's a small like quick deal, we'll close out in cash and just uh do the exit strategy as quick as we can too. So it just kind of depends
0: got it. And so what is kind of like your market outlook so far in in Dallas and in that space?
1: Looking into the future, right? I love
0: yeah. it. <laughs> crystal ball. Let's see. Yeah, crystal
1: ball. I don't know if my track record's good in, in like 2006, I I made like one good call and one bad call. So I'm like I'm like 50/50. <laughs> I think well, on a macroeconomic level, I don't think you can print as much money as the government's printing without having inflation in a bunch of different asset classes. The question, I suppose, is how long term is that inflation and how long is it more like Lumber's a good example, right? How much is it more like uh, just run up because of supply constraints or how much of it is in, you know, like the new normal or whatever. But mon- I don't see how you can't have some inflation with printing that much money, at least in the short term. I think affordability, obviously, it's coming from San Diego, uh, always kind of conscious of the affordability index in terms of kind of kind of guiding real estate pricing. So I think if interest rates creep up, then if we bump into affordability issues, it could have a compressing factor on prices. But I think we have a new kind of beast in the room, which has been in the background for a long time, but the people are finally starting to realize is a concern is we're seeing more and more funds, you know, hedge funds and uh, big um, big buying powers coming in and scooping up inventory that before you know before they liked the three two, I don't know, uh, two thousand build newer. 1995 building newer, they're starting to they're starting to almost look at real estate, residential real estate across the board as a commodity, like a cash flow commodity. And with as much new tech as there is, being able to do rehabs all over the place, being able to go virtual, even with a guy like me that does stuff all across North Texas. And where else are we at? We got some deals up in Oklahoma and we're doing some marketing out in North Carolina. So if we can do it, like a hedge fund can do it, and their cost of money is a lot less than ours. So I think long term we're gonna see a lot more of that money flood into the market. And continue to have supply constraints on the market, and continue to drive up prices. So, what's that? I guess that's good for us if we can get deals. It's bad for us if we can't get deals. But that goes back to kind of the beginning part of the conversation, where I really look at us it. like a direct to seller marketing company, where the real estate just happens to be the product.
0: What ahead. do you think?
1: Oh, that was a long, that was a long <laughs> rant. I'm sorry.
0: No, that was great. No, thank you. I really appreciate your outlook on that. And you know, it's it's just interesting to see how the market is changing and and what we can kind of expect. Especially just from your opinion and everything like that, what you're seeing um, being so close to the market.
1: Well, I think um, definitely on definitely a microeconomic level in North Texas, we read articles once in a while about like Dallas market being overpriced or overvalued, but they never really talk about what they're looking at in that respect. They don't really analyze the affordability differential between like here and maybe a Southern California market. They don't really they don't really talk about what's maybe intrinsically driving a North Texas kind of market. In terms of favorable business environment and just employment companies moving here. So, is something like our market maybe overvalued? Maybe, but compared to what? Just because something's expensive doesn't mean it's not gonna keep going up.
0: No, absolutely. So, TJ, for you, what is next for you and what are you looking to focus on?
1: Yeah, absolutely. What's the most fulfilling for me is in Dallas, I guess, having built our team out, having enabled. The employees, the acquisitions guys, the dispositions guys, like all the people that work for us in our company, is really the most kind of fulfilling part of the business, and where I get the most questions from other people that see our kind of you know success being relatively new in the Dallas market. I guess six and a half years out here. I guess it's not that now, but the most questions we get from people is, "Hey, how do I how do I do what you do?" So our next step is we actually just started a coaching program and an education kind of module. We're helping people clone aspects of our business we really take them through, we call it the the five F-R kind of thing. So the five Fs are focus on what works first and then finding deals, funding deals, fixing the intrinsic issues in the deals, be that from a title side before acquisition or a rehab side, even after acquisition, focus, find, fund, fix, and uh, finish. So dispo, if you're going to rent, refinance, sell, whatever the disposition strategy is, and then really repeat the process. Because in my mind, People think that they always get shiny object. Like, well, let's go do that. Let's go do that. And that's awesome because it makes it so that you're nimble and you can think on your feet and you can go take advantage of opportunity when it rises. But in order to build like a really sustainable business that's repeatable in the process, because the product is never really repeatable. Never, no house is exactly the same. Even if we're putting in the same pile and paint in every house, that the issues of the house are different, but the process is absolutely repeatable. So we focus on then leveraging that process, scaling that process up. And then adding on extra pieces that kind of complement the the process that we're already accustomed to. We, we really focus on building our core competencies in the program, and then adding on kind of complementary core competencies as we go.
0: Awesome! Thank you for sharing that,
1: TJ. Oh, so, thank you so much.
0: So, for you, how has real estate investing impacted your life?
1: Ups and downs, right? When things are great, things are great. When things are bad, things are still great because so many people. They're in it for the good times, but not the long time. I guess is that is that a dating metaphor? I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think having my daughter actually and having a kind of younger family, even though I'm, I just turned 40 actually this week. Yeah. Anyway, but it really made me realize the impact we make is more on the people side than even in the product or process or or house side or whatever. So obviously, when things are good and you're making a lot of money, it's awesome. But when things are not going well, when you have maybe uh, an injury or a setback financially or you know whatever, something comes at you from the side that you didn't see coming, that's where the growth opportunities really are individually. It doesn't mean that you're going to maximize like what you can make financially. But the setbacks are really so much more a growth opportunity as long as you learn from them and implement what the learning experience actually is. And that's, I mean, you don't say you ever look forward to it. But when I look back at what's really formed our success, it's really been in the incremental mindset shifts from having setbacks over the years in different in different aspects of it. So it's easy to get jaded, I guess. But I think that's absolutely the wrong way to look at it. You look at these forming experiences as ways to really grow as an individual.
0: Well, first of all, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. <laughs> and so also for you, you know, you talked about like making sure you're in the right mindset and you're taking a look at these setbacks and always continuing to learn from them. What are some of the ways, if you can share, that have helped you keep in the right mindset and, you know, taking a look at the different different experiences that you're gaining, um, not necessarily as setbacks, but as learning experiences?
1: It depends on, well, you know, if you want to go just a little personal, if we have some time, uh, I think in, in my bio I mentioned that, what, six months after I moved to Dallas, I actually broke my back in a rock climbing accident and was paralyzed for about, well, a couple months. Doctors and therapists said I'd never learn how to walk again. And it was, that's actually more than like losing money on a deal was probably more formative for me than almost anything else. I like to say it's something that I'd never want to wish on anyone, but I'm almost in a strange way. So grateful that I went through it with a lot of support and a lot of love from my family, my wife and uh, you know therapists along the way. But what I learned, like the most important takeaway, I guess, from that experience, there's like metal hanging out in the middle of my back, like holding things together. Um, was when someone says you can't do something, like you'll never walk again. They might be right, but they don't know any more than you do. So in business, you know, there's always... You listen to people who are maybe in a position that you want to emulate, not in a position that they're likely to be jealous if you get there. So when we see in business setbacks in terms of, well, you can never do that, like, well, this guy over here is doing it. And, you know, he's maybe as smart as I am, but it doesn't mean he's any, any better at it. So let's figure out how to do it. So don't listen to the critics if they're not in a position that you want to see yourself in. Listen to people that are in a position that you do see yourself in. They might have some insider knowledge that you don't have. And the second thing really is it, it's easier when you're in the hospital maybe for 2 months and actually 10 weeks, I think. And your one goal is to walk out and that's it. Than it is to like, expand that over an entire business. But from that experience, we had one goal and the one goal was walk out of the hospital uh, before the end of the year in 20... I think before January 1st, 2015. I think it was something like that. I don't remember. And we made it. So when you have one goal, that's to go do one singular thing. And then you can apply that goal in your business, in your life, in your relationships, in your interpersonal relationships. I'm not even talking about like romantic or whatever. Then you can really accomplish, I think, in my opinion, some amazing things. It doesn't mean you don't listen to outside stuff, but one singular focus goal and nothing else matters in life except for accomplishing that goal. Then then build off of that goal once you get there because you're going to get there.
0: Wow, that's incredible. And so you had broken your spine and your back mm-hmm. and you set your mind that you were going to walk after that experience. Yeah. And so in 2015, you said, earlier 2015, you had walked out of that hospital.
1: Yeah, it was kind of dropping it on you. I broke my back in November, I think 2014. I was in the hospital for 10 weeks. So November to it was yeah 10 weeks or 12 weeks or something like that. And the goal we said, they so when you do that, when somebody goes through something like that, everyone asks you, What are your goals? And you say, Well, uh, it's almost Christmas time. It's almost New Year's, I guess. My goal is to walk out of the hospital before the end of the year. And the thing about therapists is they're people like anyone else. Some of them are going to say, You're absolutely off your rocker and you're nuts because it's not going to happen. And other ones are going to say, Well, you know what? Possible. Let's do it. And if it's not possible, you know, let's give it a shot. Cause if we miss, at least we'll know that we gave it a good shot so maybe gravitate towards the ones that think that it's that you have a possibility of doing it that's the, well the thing about an accident like that i suppose is you never know really your recovery potential 100% until you just push yourself as hard as you can but applying that to life or business you never know like your business potential or your growth potential in business until you really have a single focus where almost you know almost failure is not exactly an option so that, that's that's kind of the mindset lesson i guess from it
0: Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's either you can focus on like all the negativity out there and listening to all the people who say, hey, you can't walk, you're never going to walk again, or you're going to focus on the positivity sides and the possibility of being able to walk out that door or, or, you know, achieving the goals that you set out to do, you know, it's it's focusing on that positive side of things and just continuing to motivate yourself and pushing yourself. And so it's, it's incredible what you've been able to do. And I I really appreciate you sharing that story with us.
1: (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. I thought I always share it, but it seemed. uh, I thank you so much. I really appreciate you listening.
0: So TJ, you know your story is incredibly inspiring. You know, and what you've been sharing with us today, and how you've gotten to where you are. And so, if our listeners wanted to find out more about you, TJ, where is the best place that they can go to learn more?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So if you're in North Dallas, hit me up. I'm all over Facebook, all over the groups. So just find me on TJ Cozen. That's easy because I'm pretty approachable. We do masterminds, meetups at the office, tours of renovations, all that, you know, all that fun stuff. We just had a what do we have? We had a marketing call with like 70 people on it yesterday, talking about kind of our acquisition process and our online marketing presence. So would love to have anyone join for that. Um, find me personally on Instagram if you want, uh, just TJ Cozen. And my website is uh tjkozen.com. And it's, that was pretty easy to find. If uh, you want know, my cell phone number. Then shoot, give me a call. I don't care. 858-699-1464. Be happy to help out with anyone's business or you know give any, uh, any insight I had to offer.
0: Awesome. Thank you so much again for coming on the show, TJ. I really appreciate it. Oh, I really appreciate you having me. Thanks so much, Ellen. And thank you for listening to our podcast today brought to you by Bonavest Capital. Oh. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to Bonifacecapital.com and fill out the Contact Us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.